One of the nice things about being in Atlanta is I get to hang out with my family, so just a shout out to that table over there. Woo! All right, so what questions do you guys have about identity? <laughs> Nothing. All right, this will be easy. I'm done. No. <laughs> I've answered all your questions about identity. So this is my uh, fancy pointer. Let's hope it works. It's just a mouse. The, the talk that I was giving you is finding your unique Catholic identity, right? So obviously, identity is like the word of 2019 and 2020. You've heard it everywhere. Uh, it's been in the news. It's been in politics. It's been in our way of thinking. It's been explained. It's been explained away. It's been explained back, you know? And here we are to talk about specifically Catholic identity. Okay. Okay. Is not working. This is what I want to talk about. These three points. Who am I? Becoming who I am, which is a bit of a paradox, right? Because if I am already, how can I become something that I am already? And then what is my purpose? And, sorry, let me just backtrack just two seconds. So, I went to high school here in the cathedral. I used to go to Life Team, even though we lived up in Marietta, but I went to school nearby. And so, we started showing up here because they had a great Life Team program, and they had adoration. And when we started, you know, in my high school years, I basically started off as a pagan. Uh, ever since middle school, I really didn't think I needed Catholicism in my life, or Christianity in my life. And then little by little, you know, as I progressed in high school, the Lord worked. And finally, I remember going up to the Life Team Masses here. Back with Life Team, like, we would all gather around the altar, you know, during the Life Team moment, the consecration. And I remember thinking to myself at those times, wouldn't it be awesome to one day preach here in the cathedral? And in my mind, I always thought, when I come to the cathedral to preach, who do I really want to preach to? Yeah, who do I really want to, like, help or enlightened somehow, I mean, you know, obviously share the light, right? Who would I really want to help when I come back? And in a way, it was always in my mind, obviously my peers. So the time of those high schoolers, but all, you know, I always had friends that were older, so all the guys in their 20s and 30s, all the girls in their 20s and 30s, it was always like a dream to like come back and help them. So I do have to say that it's wonderful to be here, and it's wonderful to be sharing something of the faith with you guys, right? So I'm going to try to make this as real as possible. Yeah, and the top of my notes here, I put show, don't tell. So I'm gonna try to give some content, but mostly I wanna make this as like tangible and as applicable as possible, all right? So these are the three things. This is St. Augustine from the Soliloquies. Why do I write that? That's how he starts. This was a text that he wrote before his conversion. He was already searching and St. Monica was praying for him and he had this like really legit job working for the emperor and his court and everything else. And he began to convert a little while later. He began to like wrestle with those deep questions. And he wrote this this piece, this soliloquies before his baptism. And it's this is kind of this is from the beginning. It's kind of a famous beginning, where he says, "What are the two things that I really care about?" This is a dialogue between him and his soul. Yeah, so it's a really interesting piece. He's like you know the first existential, sixteen hundred years before existentialism actually began. So he's like having this debate with himself, and he writes it all out. And he ends with saying. God and soul, that's all I want to know. That's all I really care about. I and mean, we find ourselves in a similar situation. What I most want to understand is, who am I? 
who am I really? Who are you, Christian? Who are you? You know, it's an important question. It shapes what I'm supposed to do. What am I here for? So those are the questions. That's kind of what I want to get to. All right. Who am I? Oh, by the way, I tried to give some of these ideas the other day, and I said, you know, our identity is like an onion. And then everyone started making fun of me because uh, they said, no, that's what Shrek said. Right? So I was in the seminary when Shrek came out. Uh, so who am I? Right? There's, a lot of, there's a lot of answers to this. Yeah? And again, identity politics, it's everywhere, right? So I'm defined by your choice, right? Like, I'm a Latino, right? I'm a Latino, right? I'm, a, I'm Latinx. No, I'm not Latinx. I'm Latino, right? I'm Latino, but, you know, you're white, you're black, you're brown, you're Asian, right? In a way, like, we know those categories are also artificial, right? Because white is like, boy, well, you angle, or you pick, or you Angobard, or you Visigoth, right? So, but whatever, right? I'm, I'm Western, right? I'm a man, I'm a woman. Uh, I'm not a woman, but, you know, I'm, I'm gay, right? I'm trans. Like, is that who I am? You know, we have all these things. I'm an American. I'm a Colombian American. I'm a priest. I'm a Catholic. Is that my deepest identity? What if I stop being a Catholic? What happens, right? Like, what is it really that identity means? Yeah. Here's my onion. Uh, onion, not onion, right? Identity we know is like, if I ask you who you are, you might say, well, I'm a teacher, or I'm a professional, or I'm a banker, you know, or whatever. And, and all those things are true, none of those things are false. So it's not like true identity versus false identity. It's more like external identity versus core identity. Yeah? So what this talk is about is like, what is core or core identity? <clears throat> what is the deepest thing that we have? What happens when you're no longer a banker? What happens when your parents pass away? What happens when your kids grow up and go off to college? Yeah, what's left? Who am I? And what's left, is it something that I already have? Is it something that's gonna happen later? What is it? So, obviously our faith gives us the deepest answer. And actually, just a tiny little parenthesis, it'll be really short, is the concept of personhood is an invention, well, is a development of Christianity. Yeah, back in Roman times, this idea of like you being a person didn't make any sense. It's like you're a Roman, you're an aristocrat, you're a priest class, you're a soldier, you're a slave, right? There wasn't this sense of like universal rights or personal rights or anything. It was actually developed philosophically and existentially by the Christians. And specifically, it was developed trying to figure out the Trinity. Yeah, how is it that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all form part of God? Well, let's use a word that they had, which was person, which actually meant actor, meant role. And then in applying the word role to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, and that developed little by little, it was like, well, it's more than just a role. It's like a role, but with an essence. It's a role with an essence in communication. It's a role with an essence in communication and relationship. And that's where this concept of person came. But what happened, though, as the concept of person was developing in relation to the Trinity, it meant that person was being developed in relationship to the concept of being in relationship with. Yeah? So from very early on, Christians, very, very early on, Christians were beginning to define themselves as 
What is it that most defines me? It's what most defines God. Right? We know that from Genesis. And that's being in relationship with. Yeah? That's what most defines me. Yeah? And of course, some relationships define me more than other relationships. Relationships with parents define me, relationships with siblings define me. What are the relationships that define me the most? The relationship with God Himself. Yeah. So there you have Genesis, it's beautiful and it's poetic. You also have uh, Dante right there. So Dante, that's from the very end of Dante. So he finally goes and he sees God. And God is like these beautiful, colored, concentric circles. And in the middle of the concentric circle, he sees an image of himself, an image of man. And so both at the beginning and at the end, it's this truth that we were made in the image of God. Okay. So, all that was like prelude to this moment, right? What is our deepest, deepest identity? Who am I in the deepest sense? Okay. Three things. Yeah. And it has to do with my relationship with the three persons of the Trinity. That's who we are. Yeah. We're not, I mean, we are, we're 20s and 30s, cathedral proud. You know, we are so many things, but at the deepest, deepest level, three things. The first is, I'm a son or a daughter of God the Father. Yeah, that's the deepest thing, the first, right? What does that mean that I'm a son or a daughter of God the Father, right? Like, we all have an image of what our Father, um, who our Father is. Yeah, some of you have amazing fathers, some of you have traumatic fathers. Yes, I was with someone who was actually abused by her father. So, fatherhood is a tricky term. Yeah, if it works, great, copy paste. You know, if it doesn't work, God the Father comes to heal the image of fatherhood. Yeah, at the same time, fatherhood can help. There's this guy here. I remember another priest told me he got a phone call like middle of the night and said, "Hey, my son who was on drugs jumped off the fourth story." Of this building. Yeah, Father, please come and give him last rites. He just got taken to the emergency room. I know what's going to happen. So he fell. His neck was just like a, a blob. Of everything was like broken. You know, I mean, if you've ever, you don't have to imagine it, right? But everything was broken. And so 911 came. They picked him up. They took him to the emergency room. And the dad couldn't see him. So when this priest came, they were outside the emergency room. Just hoping, hoping, praying over and over again, you know? Finally opened the door to the emergency room, and he walks in with the dad. And the guy, his, this kid, he was like in his early, early 20s, or late teens, early 20s, his face was like totally smashed, right? So like the eyes were misplaced and everything else. And the dad just went up to the bed, embraced the bed as best as he could, fell on his knees and started crying, my son, my son, he's alive, he's alive. So the love of a father. has no limits, yeah. And there's a special love for sons, there's a special love for daughters, yeah. My sister complained that she didn't get a shout out during the mass, so she's gonna get a little shout out today. So when my family came to visit me in the seminary, this always helps me to think of the relationship between a father and a daughter. 
So we're four boys, the youngest is a girl. So we're all sitting at the table, and they had visited me for the first time in like several years, right? I was seeing my parents for the first time in several years. We go out to a restaurant, and I just made professional vows or something. And so I'm talking to my dad, and all of a sudden my sister, who had been to mass with us, says, Papi, Papi. She must have been like five years old or four years old, four or five years old. She goes, Papi, I want you to sing the Alleluia for mass, right? And my dad's like, yeah, we're, we're at the table, we don't sing, you know, at the table. He keeps on talking to me. She like tugs at his sleeve. Papi, papi, but I want you to sing the Alleluia. Yeah, I'm talking to your brother. You know, please don't disturb us. We're at the table. My dad's like a very formal person, or tries to be. Yeah, we're at the table. Please don't disturb me. Please don't disturb me. She pulls the third time. Papi, I want you to sing the Alleluia. And so my dad's like, yeah, I've already told you twice. You know, this is the third time. I can tell you again, right? Bad strategy, by the way, parenting strategy. Don't say like, it's already twice. I'm not going to do it again, right? So, and I keep on talking to my dad. All of a sudden, I get distracted. I'm talking to my mom. So I'm talking to my mom. I turn around, and my dad's like, Right. So, the love of a father for his children, for his sons, for his daughter. What is the love? It's, it's the provident God. Yeah. What does it mean that God is our father? It means that he provides for us. It means that he delights in us. What did God do on the seventh day? rested. Why did he rest? He wasn't tired. Have you ever, are any of you artists? We're all artists, right? Even if it's just doodles. So are musicians. You know, some of you are musicians. It's like when you finally finish a work of art, what do you do? Yeah, you appreciate it. You kind of step back and you're like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, or you sing it to a friend or you, you like just enjoy it, right? So that's the fatherhood of God with us. That's who I am in my core. That's who, like, we all are. Regardless of what we do and how we sinned and what happened, you know? It's like God is still our Father. He can't stop being our Father. All He is is Father, by the way. Just be, like, theological, you know, Trinitarian theology. God can't but be Father. Like, everything He does. If, if our dads do something, it's like He's loving as a Father, right? Or that He takes a break to watch TV. It's like, everything God does, always, is fatherhood. Every time we pray to him, he's being our father. When he shaped us, he was our father. All right, so that's the first relationship. This is the second relationship. And it's important that we think about this because sometimes I think we just get stuck on the first one. But it's so interesting. It's like nuance. It's a diamond. Yeah. And it's what sets us apart. Our deepest truth. So I'm a brother or a sister of Christ. What does that mean? It means that there's an equality. Ever since God took on flesh, he became actually like one of us. Yeah, and I'm like, what? Right? So what's it like to imagine if Christ was here, he would be sitting at this chair, and he would look just like us. There would be no glow. There would be no aura. I mean, maybe in his eyes, right? Because he's the perfect, perfect man, perfect human, perfect charity, perfect love, and yet radically one of us. So what does that mean for us about my identity? It means that everywhere I go, I have a brother 
was also God. And if you don't have any siblings in your life, you can start with a relationship of a friend, a really close friend. That's who God is for us. He cares about us. He's faithful. Just like a, a brother is faithful. Yeah, he's always, you can always count on him to be there. He kind of pursues you and does life with you. Yeah. You know, the difference between a brother and a friend, right? Because you choose your friends. Right? <laughs> but uh, anyway, but this one, you know, he, we didn't choose him, actually. And he's impressed this radical equality. It also means that whatever mission he has, it's our mission as well. Yeah, so Christ in, in his humanity, he's like redeeming the world, he's preaching the word, he's meeting people, he's with others. That's what he's trying to, that's also my identity. Yeah. We always want to be like related to someone famous. Right? It's a good thing, it's an important thing, right? It's like, my parents were on the Mayflower, right? That's great. Not my parents. Whatever, you know, my great, great, great. You know what I mean? So, but with Christ, it's true. He is my brother. And so again, I'm never alone. And maybe with the relationship of father, it's hard to like compute because of something in my life or something in my family or whatnot. The relationship of brother is another entrance into the relationship of brother. Yeah, I'm never alone. I have a common mission. I'm equally chosen by God. Seeing Christ and seeing his life helps me to understand how God loves me. And the third relationship is this. Of the Holy Spirit, I am a temple and a masterpiece. And this isn't just like, you know, really nice thinking, right? Often when I say these things, I'm like, man, do I believe this? Right? Like, in my high school, if there was a graduating class of 50, and I think two of us were Catholic, and one of them, she went to Mass. Yeah? And so I remember thinking when I heard all this stuff, like, God's in the Eucharist, right? Would I really say that to my friends? All my, like, atheist friends, right? God's in the Eucharist. And they're like, okay, you know? Have another drink, right? Like, you are insane, right? You are crazy. This is crazy. This is totally crazy. That the Holy Spirit actually dwells inside of you and me. Yeah, I mean, it's, right? If I had a meme, I should have put more memes in here. Uh, <coughs> my sister said, listen, unless you can talk about memes and Adidas socks, like, you cannot evangelize Zoomers. So, so, anyway, but you know the meme, right? The mind-blowing meme, yeah? Next time I'll put it here. So, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us like a church. And yeah? next time you walk into the cathedral, just stop for a moment and be like, I am this to God. Yeah? As you, like, cross the threshold, be like, this is me. And then take a step back. Yeah. I mean, don't really do that with other people behind. But right? I mean, just think about it for a moment. God is there inside of me. Which is really cool is turn to the person next to you, and God is there inside of her or inside of him. Yeah. Every single one of us, that's what our faith teaches us. This is what we believe. The Holy Spirit dwells inside. What does that mean for my identity? I mean several things. One is, again, I'm never alone. My deepest identity has nothing to do with where I work, what I do, or how much I make, or what I look like, none of that. It is the fact that 
the Holy Spirit literally dwells inside me. Yeah. And also, that everywhere I go, I'm like a walking temple. You know, where is the church? Well, there's a bunch of walking, living stones everywhere. That's the Catholic Church. Yeah. Today we heard some, you know, the report came out. We've all kind of been bombarded with all the wrongdoings of the church. But, like, we are, every single one of us, a living temple walking around. Yeah. All right, so this is, like, the core. This is the answer to who I am. Now I'm going to jump into becoming who I am. Yeah. So... Before I get to becoming my own, any questions? And then we're gonna have some table group discussions. Any questions so far?
find a relationship that will be stable for the rest of your life, right? Like find a mate, find a spouse eventually, right? All these, all these things that like pop culture offers. But of course, some are good, some are bad, you know, some are misplaced. So what is it specifically that, to use like a traditional Aristotelian term, perfects us? Yeah, when do I become more of me? When do I become a better me? So this is what the church teaches. All the faithful of Christ, of whatever rank or status, are called to the fullness of the Christian life and to the perfection of charity. By this holiness as such, a more human manner of living is promoted in this earthly society. Yeah, what is it that develops our deepest core? What is it that actually helps me to like, develop more? It's this, the perfection of charity. Yeah, this is like, did you ever, I don't know if they're still around, remember those um, things that like you stick in water, those little sponges that you stick in water and they just grow like this? Yeah. Okay. That's what charity is for our soul and for us as humans. And that's what develops us into better and deeper humans. Charity is the virtue that helps to like, it activates all our qualities. It activates our talents. If you're a great musician and you, great, you write great music, um, but you really want to develop that talent fully, you practice charity, not only are you building up, actually, this comes later, but not only are you building up the art that you have, but it's actually becoming like a force of good in the world. Yeah. Okay, that was very abstract. I'm gonna move right along. Here it is. So again, this is all Vatican II. Um, which is all the bishops got together to write a code that would help us in the 20th century. Yeah. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Uh, but God pours out his love into our hearts with the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us in Christ. Okay, becoming who I am. I guess the point I was really trying to get across here is this, that all these things that were offered to become more of who we are, that can be um, professional success, that can be personal development, personal growth. All those things are at the core, at the surface of our identity. The things at the core of our identity that really develops us is the growth in charity. Yeah, the growth in love. Okay, the Beatitudes. Third point, what is my purpose? Yeah, why are each of us here, right? Like if I'm a son of God, if I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, and I'm a brother of Christ, why didn't Christ just take us and like bring us straight into heaven? You know? If God really, this is our deepest identity, why don't we just stay the whole time in the job? Praying. Yeah? Why don't we just like, I don't know, stay in church the whole time? If that really is our identity. Yeah? And it's because each one of us has a particular reason why we're here. And the reason why we're here is this. By this point as such, a more human manner of living is promoted in this earthly society. Yeah, the reason we're here is because we have a task. 
And the task is to make this world a more human place for all of us. Because everyone that's out there is also either right now or called to be a son of the Father, a brother of Christ, and a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so the world that we live in is meant to be that place where all of us can flourish. Yeah? That's like our specific task. Again, let me give you some examples. So, do you know who this guy is with a mustache? These are all examples of people who use their talents, develop their talents in charity to make this a better place, to make the world a better place for other humans. Yeah? So that guy in the mustache, he is a blessed, he's a doctor from Naples, whose name actually, I just forgot. <laughs> yeah, uh, no. What's his name? Do you guys know this doctor? If the name doesn't come to me, I'll, I'll tell you his story. I forget his name, actually. So he was a doctor in the 1800s, and he lived in Naples. And he became very famous because he was a professional. He was like the president of the, of the Doctor Association of Naples for many years. And he's the first one. If you think of, if you think of hospitals during the, during the uh, Industrial Revolution, you normally think of like really crowded places, right? Like warehouses with beds, just stuff in there. They wanted to get the sick people as far away as possible from the rest of society. This guy, it occurred to him, he realized, wait a second, when people come into the hospital, they get sicker faster. And so he began to take his patients out into the courtyard of the hospitals. And when the people went out to the courtyard, they began to get better. So in a world where there was very little like scientific development in these hospitals in Italy, in Naples especially, he began to take them out, he saw if they were better, and he began to register and investigate and he actually changed the way that we think of hospitals today. Yeah, so now when you think of hospitals, it's like everyone has their own room, you get the windows, you get as much fresh air as possible. It was thanks to him. Giuseppe Moscati. Yes, thank you, Dr. Giuseppe Moscati. Sorry about that. I really am a priest, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you know who this lady is there with the eye patch? Yes, very good. Chiara Bordello Petrillo, right? So you know what her story is? How did she make the world better? So, Italian mom, married, had a child. The child uh, was born and died like within a couple hours. Right? Which, of course, in a culture like ours, it says, well, you know, birth defects bad, life expectancy bad, you know, um, quality of life, let's measure it out and see if it's really worth it or not. So she had this experience, and instead of like shuffling it away and being traumatized by it, she went around preaching, trying to like create a greater awareness of the value of life, period. Now, tragically, she had another son, and the same thing happened. She had a third son, and when she was pregnant, she got cancer, I think ovarian cancer. And so she had to decide, do I start treatment, or do I cure out the pregnancy? So she decided to cure out the pregnancy. As soon as the baby was viable, they, uh, you know, they, she gave birth. And immediately they began with the treatment, but by then it had already like grown into her eye. So she got cancer, she lost an eye, um, and eventually she died. Kind of like John Hunter at the moment, right? Do you know who this guy is? No? 
He is, his name is Shabbos Bhatti. And so Shabbos Bhatti, he was the, he was a political, um, well, he worked in politics in Pakistan. Yeah? And Pakistan has laws against converting Christianity, has laws against preaching Christianity in different places, right? So he was a Christian, from very young he was a Christian, and he was always very outspoken about his faith. And so when he was in the university, he put up a sign in the college board that said, uh, you know, Bible study Wednesday after school, and someone ripped it down. So the following days, put up a sign, Bible study Wednesday afternoon. Some you know, one of the Muslim students came and ripped it down. The third time, Bible study Wednesday afternoon. And so he literally wrote it in his blood. Bible study Wednesday afternoon, and he posted it. And this time they didn't take it down because they were grossed out. No, they didn't. No, they didn't take it down because they knew we can't win this battle. He'll continue and continue and continue to burn up. So he did. He was like, uh, he was, you know, he was involved in politics for his like local area. He was always fighting for religious liberties, and eventually he was killed. His brother became the first minister ever in Pakistan. They opened up a new like secretariat, you know, so he was the minister for uh, religious inclusion in Pakistan. And his martyrdom paved the way to transform not just the culture of Pakistan, but also the culture among politicians, the culture among Catholics, of what you can do. Okay? So these are all examples of how, like, our, and these are all lay people, by the way, how your talents, this is all the point of, like, what am I to do? What is my mission? And your mission specifically is to transform this world to make it a more human place. Yeah. How do you do that? How are we going to accomplish that? Not by becoming more in the many categories that the world is offering. Yes, those things are good, they're important. But specifically, by transforming your talents in charity. You all know this guy is, right? He's the latest, most recent blessed of the church. He was born in 1991, which is like just around the corner. So how did he transform the culture that he lived in? Remember hearing one time, right? Like if they take down all the internet, right? They, they just destroy all the internet sites. There's gonna be one internet site left that says, like, you know, please bring back porn, right? So this guy, what he did was he worked super hard to evangelize the internet, and he built this database. Like instead of IMDb, it was like Eucharistic Miracles DB, you know, literally. And he put up all the Eucharistic miracles in the world. His dad was a lawyer; and he was an only child, so he could travel to all these places. He traveled all these different places, took pictures, did his research, built these super cool postcards, put them on the database, so that when people were searching online, they would search and find good things. And that would be, uh, you know, fed spiritually. You know who she is? She's the first non-lay person. She's Catherine Drexel. So she built the first university for black Americans uh, after the Civil War. Yeah, in the South. So the first university for African Americans in the South. There were a couple in Philadelphia, but obviously the South had, you know, slavery and so. You know who these guys are? Do you know what the um, the Beckett Fund is? No, the Beckett Fund. Any lawyers out there? Uh, I know Katie Beckett. So the Beckett Fund. You know what the Beckett Fund is? Is it related to St. Thomas Beckett? Yeah, it's related to St. Thomas Beckett. So the Beckett Fund here in the States 
is a group of lawyers who defend religious liberty. They're the ones that defended the Little Sisters of the Poor when they took their case up to the Supreme Court. These guys here are Seamus Hassan and Mary Hassan. So a couple, and together they founded the Becker Fund. Yeah, he was a very successful lawyer in DC, and he decided to take all of his talents to form this, um, this group that would then go and defend religious freedom along the, in the US. Do you know who this guy is? Yes, very good. Gaudi. So you know who Gaudi is, right? Gaudi is the guy who, he was an architect, and he was way ahead of his time. And so he lived in Barcelona, and he kind of revolutionized architecture in the uh, early 20th century. His church in the late 19th century, early 20th century. He's the one, he's the architect behind the Sagrada Familia. <laughs> Extremely devout, he'd go to mass every single day, read the scriptures continually, and was able to shape the landscape of probably the hippest city in Spain. Yeah, he, he started church and he said um, that it could only be built the way that the old uh, cathedrals were built. And so what that means is uh, it had to be built with donations of pilgrims. So the Japanese government has offered several times just to pay for the whole thing, you know, in exchange for being allowed to make a copy in Tokyo. But because of the way that he left it in his will, it can only be built by donations. So it's been 137 years, and uh, it's almost done. You know? Like, don't hold your breath, but it's almost done. <laughs> you know who this guy in the middle is? That's the one, sorry, I got confused with Moscati. So this is Frasati. Yeah, the guy in the middle, that's Pierre Giorgio Frasati. So he was a lawyer, I mean, he was, sorry, the son of a lawyer in Milan. And he won, unfortunately, he died very young. He wanted to study mining so that he could improve the living conditions of the miners in Italy. Yeah. He's, he's a blessing now, by the way. So his parents were both um, agnostics or atheists, and he would spend his time basically like serving the poor. And they say that when he died, you know, his parents organized like a little, you know, whatever funeral there in the parish. And all of a sudden, the church was just like filled with people that went of all the homeless that he would go and he would take food to. Live charity towards. You know who this is? No? This is Mary Everstadt. All these people are like super devout Catholics. Mary Everstadt, she is a philosopher, she's a writer, um, she is on being interviewed on TV all the time. She wrote this great book recently called How Identity, How the Sexual Revolution Led to Identity Politics. Yeah, that's, that, that's being like quoted and recorded and quoted and quoted. So she's a philosopher, she's a scholar who put all her talents the transformation of the gospel. And then this is my family. No, I'm kidding. No, this guy here, on the left, his name is Greg Botaro. And, and he is cutting edge in uh, mental health counseling. Specifically, uniting, I mean like, translating mental health issues and mental health counseling together with everything that current society needs. So he's written a book on Catholic mindfulness. He's graduated from Divine Mercy University. He started a whole group of psychologists in Connecticut. He's doing some cutting edge work in um, same-sex attraction. Extremely devout Catholic, who's doing things that are really transforming his profession. Uh, and this guy here, he's the only non-Catholic there. His name is Barney Sims. And I know about him because my brother is working in Alabama, uh, doing residency, medical residency. This guy here founded a clinic 
in Alabama. That's, it's an evangelical, he's an evangelical, but he welcomes all Christians, and it's explicitly training doctors in the Christian faith to go offer affordable health care to minorities all over the South. Yeah, so he's a doctor, but he's using all his talents to do this, right? So the reason I was showing you all these pictures is because it's important for each one of us to reflect, how does God want to use my talents to shape this culture, to shape this world? Yeah, you saw here, artists, lawyers, engineers, Prescott uh, was an engineer, Doctors, intellectuals, authors, writers, like nobody gets a pass. Yeah. But the question is, am I going to use my talents to make this world a more human place as the church and Christ are asking me to do? Or can I get caught up in the kind of just typical, you know, rat race or competition or seek to improve myself in ways that have very little transcendent impact. Okay? Great. So those were the three things we called, we, we spoke about were okay, let's table group questions. So the first the first question has everything to do with the first topic of who am I? The second question has to do with what does it mean to become who I am? And the third one is what is my purpose? Before we get into these, any questions? This is kind of a lot of content. Yeah, Steve. Are you familiar with how many other people worked with those specific pictured people on the cause that they were working towards? Yeah, that's a very good. That's a very good point. I think you're trying to say like it takes a team. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no, you're right. And it's not um, the Catholic Church is not about like superheroes doing amazing things. Yeah, it's about teams of Avengers getting together. Are you aware of any of their beginnings? Because like, I love all of that, and I love the concept of having teams of Avengers, but I personally struggle getting that mindset and those actions taking place so that we can do those kind of things. Yeah, I mean... You know, I know you guys, you know, we have here at the cathedral, we have small groups. Some of you have other forms of small groups. It really is essential to have community, to grow in holiness, and to understand your identity, and to fulfill your mission. For sure, 100%. It's kind of built into our life as Catholics as well. You know, we don't, when we pray, we don't say, my Father who art in heaven. Like our Father who art in heaven. When we go to Mass, it's like the Lord be with you and also with you. You know, there's a dialogue going on there. Thing where it's like, oh yes, God is love, and then you kind of accept that, but then 
we never really define that and we never really talk about it. It's like kind of a little bit hard to understand like, okay, like in this action, where where was the, for example, in the uh, Batsi, when he's putting up the, the, the sign every day, those being, uh, being taken down, right? Like um, how specifically is that like love being uh, carried out, right? So and, and what is it? What is it that love is doing? Like, what is the sort of like the mechanism there that is that is sort of like putting goodness into the action that you do that otherwise wouldn't be there? If that if that question even makes sense. Oh, I think so. <laughs> this is what our lunches sound like at home. So, and there's, did everyone understand the question? Yeah, let me see if I can rephrase it. Yeah, the question maybe is just like. What is it specifically that constitutes love? Yeah, how, like, sort of how, how can you, because you know, like in the gospel, say, say uh, Paul says, right, if you don't have love, you're just a clashing symbol, right? And so uh, that's a completely, like, that's a radical difference between a, class, uh, like a clashing symbol and a prophet, right? That's one of the examples he used. And so, uh, yeah, I guess I, I want to understand more, like, what is, yeah, what, what is happening there, I guess, you know? Yeah. So, I think what's happening there specifically is the love is received by God as a person. Yeah, so where do we find love? Yeah, looking for love in all the wrong places down here. So, where do we find love? We find love in God. Yeah, we find love in our relationship with God. And so the first place we find love is accepting, acknowledging that we are a son of God. And accepting this world that we have around us as a manifestation of God's love. Yeah, it's kind of like, you don't just start a flame of love in your life, like with a lighter, like where do you find the lighter? It's a flame that's already given to you. And that's why the symbolism of baptism is precisely receiving a flame. Right? Like you're not gonna have to manufacture a flame on your own to like get love jump started in your life. Because otherwise it'd be impossible. And so the first thing is actually to receive love, to acknowledge, hey, I'm loved by God the Father. I don't know exactly what that means, but everything around here is love. Secondly, I've been redeemed by Christ. And so not only is my sinfulness kind of like, well, you know, God made all these great things and then I'm kind of like a flawed, you know, product. But then Christ actually came and picked me back up again. And he's like, hey, you sinned? Okay, I get it, right? Like, that's why I died on the cross. Come on with me, right? So there's the redemption by Christ. And then there's also, like, the progressive growth in this transformation, which is the Holy Spirit literally living within me. And so I think what's the difference between love and a clashing symbol is connecting with that goodness, connecting with that providence, connecting with that attitude of mercy and redemption when I choose to reach out to someone. And if it flows from that, then it's love. If it doesn't flow from that, then it's because I'm putting some obstacle. Yeah? I was just going to share that the fruit of the Spirit is a good means of portraying love, love, joy, peace, patience. When, you know, when we are patient and kind and generous, all that. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great way of looking at it as well. Yeah, you. Um, so back to like the first point about, and like the first question about our relationship with the Trinity. Um, 
obviously like each of us will resonate with one of those relationships more than another. Is you know how like when we have certain talents, we want to focus on those talents and strength in the world where you get at? Is it kind of the same thing here where if I really resonate with my relationship as a son to the father, do I want to lean into that and, and kind of you know really, really lean into that in my, in my relationship with God, or should I focus on developing other relationships? How does that work? We prioritize. Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, the nice thing about prayer is like you can always pray. Yeah, there's not a limited bandwidth. And so I would definitely say start with leaning into that reality of who God is for you. And that's kind of why the questions were phrased that way. But also, one of the goals of this talk was like to expand the way we think about our relationship with God. Yeah. And so try it. What does it mean to like pray? You know, let's say I've never felt that I'm a son of God. And I've never, I mean, I've heard it, but I've never felt it, or what do I do? Well, it's actually, one is share with someone who has, right? That's very helpful. That's why we're going to have these, this time of questions. The second is actually go to the chapel, fall on your knees, and pray to our Father, like, very slowly. That's one of growing in your relationship with God as a son. How do you grow in your relationship with God as a, as a brother? One is to start reading the scripture, start reading the life of Christ. And every single time you read something, be like, this is my brother. When you pray the creed, instead of saying, like, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible, start saying, I believe in you, God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Yeah? You are the creator of heaven and earth. You died for me, you resurrected. If you take it in the, like, directly second person, it has an amazing way of, like, developing your faith. Yeah, and then Tommy. I would say sure. I, <laughs> no, I mean sure. Like I am a priest, you know. But the real question is not so much, you know, the identities. We can make them clash, and that's kind of what the world wants to do, because it's an easy way of gaining political power, and also because maybe we're just so confused, we don't really know what our identity is, right? So it's probably a more charitable interpretation. But the point I think with our identity is an identity that's inside the other identity. Yeah, so you can't, like, no one can take away that identity that I have as a son of the Father. And then I'll, I can be, you know, an actor on top of that. Sure. Great. Tommy. I was going to say, do you think the core of our identity is affected by the sacraments? Yes. Fantastic. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, well, it's a bit of a tricky question, right? Like, are we... Some people ask, well, are you a son of the Father before baptism? Or not, right? The way I like to think about it is, well, everyone is destined to be a son of the Father. This is what you were asking. Maybe not, yeah? So everyone is, like, created in order to be adopted. Yeah? No one was created and been like, ah, yeah, just kind of make it on your own. Yeah? Not everybody reaches baptism on earth, obviously. Right? Some people, like, through no fault of their own have never met God. And so the Lord, as the psychopathic council teaches, in ways unknown to us, reaches out to them and makes them part of his family. Yeah, but everyone is born to be part of his family. So the way I like to think about it is creation is like one arm of the God the Father, and baptism is the second arm of God the Father. 
so that when you're baptized, something that was already meant to happen becomes a reality. Yeah. But until it happens, it's like a it's like a tension, you know? We're being pulled up, pulled up, pulled up until God finally gives us the sacraments. Yeah. And then of course every time we receive communion, we're reestablishing our brotherhood with Christ. Yeah. In a very deep and intimate way. It's like receiving a hug from Christ himself, your brother. And then in sacrament of confirmation, the Holy Spirit comes in a new and more powerful way into your soul. And so we receive the Holy Spirit from the baptism. But in confirmation, that presence is strengthened even more. It equips us to actually living as temples in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do I need to record your conversation here? 